Well, we are back at Unleashed, and uh, we are the resistance. Guys, it is so good to be back in the studio. Um, you know, sometimes we have to record a couple of episodes ahead because of my travel schedule. Um, this is one of those um, that I just got back. I was in Alaska. I was working up there um, doing a men's retreat, actually, up there, which was incredible. Went, went wonderfully well. Um, but wow, that jet lag will just bite you. I mean, it was about a four-hour time difference. But that four hours, you know, when you get in and you're speaking the next day, and then you get on a plane the same day you spoke, and with the second day, and then fly back. Wah, wah, wah. Somebody call the ambulance, right? But I got home for a couple of days and immediately had to turn around. Had to. Yeah, let me say that. I got to um, turn around and go to deer camp, which, you know, it's the, it's the time for the rut. You know, everything has been cranking up. And it's that stuff, you know, you plan for as a, as a hunter, especially a whitetail hunter, you know, that you're, you're anticipating and, and waiting for. And so anyhow, I got in last night. I'm here in the studio first thing this morning. And Eric, good to see you, man. Hey, good to see you. You doing all right? I'm good, man. How about you? Otherwise, what does a rut mean to you? Well, that's what I was going to say. What does a rut mean to you? <laughs> I, I tell you what it means for me. Um, I wanted to go side in an AR at my buddy's house yesterday, and he said, you can't, not till the 1st of December. I don't want to scare the deer. Oh, wow. So that's what the rut means to me. <laughs> you know, I think about, you know, I had guys sighting rifles and up over the hill from where I was hunting. And I think it depends on if they're used to hearing those sounds. I mean, a lot of times if you're like living around a farm, or, you know, high traffic. Do you get used to so many sounds? And, and we, we even think about, because it's going to be really weird, you're thinking about, like, peeing off your stand. A lot of guys are like, man, I'm not, you know, I'll take a bottle with me, whatever it is. I don't want to put my scent down. We did all the testing with the scrapes, with the bucks and the does and everything. It really doesn't affect them. Everyone thinks, oh, don't, do, go, don't go within 200 yards of your stand. No, you got to go, you got to go. Right. Just make sure you're not, you don't do too much movement, you know, when you're on your stand. But anyhow, what's our question? Well, the question is, what do guys need to do to get ready for the rut? What can they do to have the most successful uh, hunting season this year? Yeah. Well, the number one thing you have to do to be successful is you got to be in the woods. And I get this one question I get all the time is, um, you know, what's the best time of the day to hunt for the rut? The answer is Yes. Because if you're not in your stand, right, you right. Know, there could be a buck getting up and he maybe he was with another doe and he's looking for another doe. But it, it, a lot of it depends. We'll talk about this in a minute. You know, the barometric pressure changes. You know, studies have shown that, that whitetails, they seem to move the best when the pressure is somewhere between like, I think it's 29.9 and, and what is it, a little over 30. Um, but when you get to maintain around that, that 30 range, the barometric pressure, that's the time you want. That's the best time. Um, for to see deer movement, but you know what? Let's let's do this. You asked the question: What do we need to do to get ready for the rut? And because the rut is, you know, it's it's in right now. By the time some of you guys are hearing this, um, it's going to be getting what they call lockdown. You know, the the bucks are locked down with does, and you're not seeing that chasing and seeking phase like you're seeing right now. And then you're going to have late season coming up. So you know, let's let's kind of do it all. In this podcast, and we were joking, Eric. What, what, what did I say? Let's call this. Oh, white tails, white tails and women, white tails and women. So that might get me in trouble. But hey, I, I can think of other titles. But we're not gonna we're not gonna use those. Sure. Be really funny. I just wanted to be clear that was Brent's idea to call it that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and honey, I apologize. Um, please let me go hunting. Anyhow, well, let's let's go ahead. Let's get the let's get this thing rolling. So we were talking about you know. Eric's moving back over here to get some stuff done. You know, what's, what is the best time? Let's just kind of begin with, you know, like early season, and we'll just kind of move through to late season, actually, with this. And we'll, we'll go through a bunch of stuff. I mean, you guys that aren't hunters, I think you'll learn a lot, and you will learn stuff about your wife or your girlfriend. Hopefully not if you're married, you have a girlfriend, but you know what I'm saying by that. But let's, let's kind of start with early season. Um, I'm not a big morning hunter in in early season i'm talking whitetails now i'm not talking elk i'm talking you know whitetails um early season just doesn't seem to be as productive with the movement where the evenings you know because it's it's been so hot and in the evenings when things are beginning to cool off you'll get the you know the the deer moving more um and what's nice about early season too is you kind of get to see the bachelor groups of bucks. And what I mean by that, most of you probably know, but the bucks are kind of still hanging together, you know, until it gets close to rut, they break up because now it's a solo. Hey, it's, I'm looking for this doe, get out of my way. I'll fight you, all that stuff. But bachelor groups, 
when they're coming out into the fields where you can actually, you know, see the competition is great because that's what they're doing. They're looking for their competition. They want to see, you know, who's the bigger buck, who's the more aggressive buck, because come rut time, it's going to matter. I mean, they've got to be able to stay on their ground um, to be the dominant, you know, the alpha male. So they're really kind of checking each other out during that time. So, you know, early season's a great time, you know, game cameras, um, man, everything changed. When I was a kid, we didn't have anything like that. We'd go spotting with a, you know, in the pickup truck and a spotlight hitting the fields. And, you know, I don't do much of that anymore. Um, I think a lot of it is I just don't want to pressure the deer. And when you can use game cameras now, and especially now cellular game cameras, you don't have to keep going in, you know, and pulling the card, you know, to check your game cameras. So that means less pressure on the deer. Um, but game cameras, man, they're just an awesome way, especially, you know, Year-round, actually, because you want to find out what food sources they're hitting at different times of the year, water sources, bedding areas. And another thing, when you start noticing those those really big bucks, here's the one thing about big bucks. They, I like big bucks. Um, they, uh, they have a sanctuary. That's how they got as big as they are. So one of the things a game camera can do is if you're willing to, you know, occasionally going in and, and moving those game cameras around or putting some extra ones up, maybe in some areas that you wouldn't think most deer would want to go, you might have just found a sanctuary because he knows that's not where you're going to go. It can be, it can be behind a, a silo. You know, it, it could be anywhere um, along a fence row somewhere that no one ever walks past, a ditch somewhere. But you want to find those sanctuaries because when you can start locating the sanctuaries of some of these bigger bucks, you can begin to start patterning, you know, where does he go in the morning? Where does he go in the evening? And then you can adjust your plans, whether it's a blind or a stand or, or whatever. Um, but early season is, is really a great time to kind of, you know, measure all those, those bucks. And so, and, and food sources, I mean, they're putting on all that weight because during the rut, they're going to be running hard. So water is really going to be important when you start moving towards the rut because they're going to be thirsty. I mean, they're, they're running both, you know, the, the does and the bucks are both going to be needing water. But then, you know, we start getting into, you know, that little time in late October, it just seems to slow down a little bit and the bachelor groups have broken up and they're gearing up, they're getting ready. You know, you've got the rut coming. You know, your younger bucks typically are beginning to go in, you know, in late October. Um, you'll start seeing, you know, your scrapes and rubs and everything beginning to happen. And a lot of guys will ask me, they say, no, do you, do you hunt, you know, scrapes? Um, I don't focus on that. I really focus on more where I know their travel routes are going to be. Um, and, and you've actually got, you know, some of the, 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 the science I had read on this is that there's actually three different types of, of scrapes, um, which is something I, I didn't know until a few years ago. I never hear this talked about, but you've got like a young buck when he's making his first uh, scrape, you know, it's usually not too far inside the woods. It's maybe off of a logging road or something. And it's, it's not a, it's not a really important scrape. He's just kind of coming into his testosterone and he's, he's doing his thing. He's making a scrape. And then you start finding some scrapes that, that um, they're called secondary scrapes. And it almost looks like a turkey was scratching there. It's, it's like a, a marker that kind of leads back and forth from the bedding area, how they kind of travel. But the one you want to focus on is going to be your primary scrape. And you can always identify a primary scrape because it always has a licking branch above it. You know, it'll be five, six, you know, feet, maybe even seven feet sometimes. They'll stand up and work them with those preorbital glands in their forehead. And they're putting their scent down and then they'll paw up the ground and they'll, they'll urinate in it to put their scent, hey, this is me, I'm in your area here. And then many times you'll notice they put a paw print right down in the center of this thing. It's almost like a calling card. So, yeah, I, I will, you know, if I see a really good um, hot scrape, and see, you're not going to just have them make one right next to the ladder stand or something you've had, another stand you've had up for years. So when you find one of those, you're probably going to be using a climber a lot of the times, you know, climbing stand. And make sure that the way you set your climber up, the way that you're going to be angled in the way that that deer is working, and this is nice when you can put a camera on that and you can see how they're approaching it, what angle they're going to be turning their body many times to work that licking branch, um, then you'll know what, if you have a tree positioned right so you can get that good you know, broadside or quartering um, shot. So, and the other thing about, about scrapes is, um, man, a lot of guys don't want to be out in the rain or whatever, but I'll tell you what, when you get that rain passing through and it's just almost done, 
it's a great time to be in the stand because those bucks are running around working those scrapes again, urinating, marking their territory because everything starts to get washed out. And those will also use um, scrapes as, as communication. I'll make, sometimes I'll make mock scrapes. Like if I do have a pre-existing stand that I've been out there and I've got a nice little sapling, um, you know, I'll even take fishing line and I'll, I'll pull that sapling down to where that licking branch that I'm going to create, I want it to be, you know, at that height, maybe five to six feet off the ground. And I'll tie it with fishing line, the end of that branch back to the, to the middle of the tree so that I've got a nice arch in that wearing rubber gloves and then strip off the leaves you know, get that exposed because when, when bucks are rubbing, that's what they're doing. They're stripping all that stuff off and then put a little bit of scent down in the, uh, the scrape. And as the bucks begin to realize, Hey, wait a second, there's somebody in my area. They'll start frequenting those. That's why they make mock scrapes. Um, so yeah, I, I do, I do hunt those and I think it's important. Uh, I don't, that's not my main source because again, a lot of times those can be nocturnal as well. So you just got to get a game camera. You can kind of see when they're hitting those things, you know, moving through. So when the rut is coming in, you know, how, how do we know when to really be in the woods? When is that, that movement really going to happen? You know, I said a second ago, when you've got a younger buck, he might be coming in, um, you know, in the, the end of, of October or first couple of days of, of November, but your more mature bucks usually are, are starting to come in, you know, the beginning of November. And I believe the, the, the two top days for shooting bucks is, is usually the, about the 7th and the 8th of November. That's the, the, the prime target. And, you know, rut it, it typically is peaking somewhere between like November 6th, November 10th, you know, that area. But it can, it can vary a little bit. Um, I was talking to Dr. Dave Samuel um, who's bow hunting hall of fame. He's brilliant. We got into a conversation one day about this and I was asking him about, you know, the, the exact dates of when they come in. I remember Charlie Alzheimer, who had been a friend, you know, he passed away a few years ago, but he used to talk about, you know, kicking in, I think it was the second full moon after the fall equinox. And he was, you know, coming up with all this data, but really a lot of that, when they actually start, can come in on the health of the deer, meaning like, say you had a really good acorn crop and there's a good food source, you got good food, you got healthy deer. They're going to come in at the time when they would typically be coming in. If they're not as healthy, it could delay things, you know, for a few days. So that was, that was really good information to kind of have, you know, this year we had pretty good acorns. And uh, like I said, I just got back from hunting camp last night, but the, the one thing that can really affect that peak rut time, like it did this year, which was an anomaly, it was crazy. It was 81 degrees in Southern Indiana where I was hunting. It was 76 and 81 the last two days. And when you know, the day I had to, to come back home, the cold front kicks in. And so I was, I was taking my daughter to school this morning and on the drive there, it was, it had been light for, you know, probably 30 minutes. And there was, there was a buck out running these two does in the field. I'm like, Oh man, I want to be in the woods, but temperatures can really mess things up because you're going to find out, you know, early morning, they're probably going to be running stuff because of the cooler temperatures, but you might find some of your evening, you know, the bucks running the does becoming more nocturnal or, you know, right at dark because it's been so stinking hot. Um, and they're exhausted. I mean, they've been, they've been running like crazy. And then you're going to find out, you know, when the rut is, is starting to, it looks like, Hey, where did the, the deer go? There's, there's something we call lockdown, you know, and that's when the bucks are paired up with a doe. And that's usually like, like three to five days and after that whole chasing phase has begun with, with the, the, the does, the bucks are running them. So you're going to find out, you know, that lockdown phase might be somewhere the 10th to the 15th, kind of an area before gun season's coming in. And it can be frustrating. But again, you know, when's the best time to hunt? If you're in the stand, that's when you're the best chances of taking a deer. So you just got to see maybe that, that buck was done with that doe and he's looking for another one. Um, late season. You know, late season is, is, is different. You know, it's really cold. It's uncomfortable. And focus on food plots. Focus on food sources. That's where the deer are going to be coming um, to eat, you know. And so a lot of my evening hunts, you know, that time of the year, I really like it. And yet there's something people talk about, you know, the second rut. Is it real? Yeah, it is real. If the, if the doe, when she bred, didn't take the first time around in, in that first week of November-ish kind of a time, about 30 days later, she'll come back in again. It's not as, you know, crazy as the first rut, but it's, it's, it exists. It's real. I remember during gun season in Pennsylvania one year, I had a, a hunter and he was going, man, have you seen this deer? I said, what deer? He says, well, I'm, I see blood. She was bedded down. 
well, she had come into estrus again because she didn't take them the first time around. It's kind of funny, but it's it's true. It's it's real. So focus on your food source. You know, in that uh, um, that 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 time of the year in December, late December, maybe the beginning of January. What about? Uh, let's let's talk about rattling for a second. I mean, that's a technique that a lot of guys overlook. Um, you know, you know, calling and rattling um, in the early mornings is when I prefer to do that. When the bucks are out and they're they're on the the troll, I don't use the word troll again. I don't like troll with a like a snort wheeze. You know, when that you know when they're mad and they're they're mad at another deer. Maybe they're trying to get a doe to stand still because it's trying to breed with her, and they're kind of doing that snort wheeze or sniff wheeze. And I've had some guys say, man, you should just troll with that to get that, that buck to come in. Well, it's, a, it's an aggressive sound. And if that buck isn't looking for a fight at that moment, he might not want to be where that other buck is and you won't even see him. Um, you know, I'll troll sometimes with the, the, the grunts or attending grunt. You know, sometimes I'll do like a, like a mama call with a, a doe. She's ready to breed. And then I'll follow that up with attending grunt. But rattling... As I was saying, a lot of guys overlook this, and rattling is, is, is really powerful. But I think it just takes a lot of time and energy to, to do it right, and a lot of guys don't understand how to rattle. You know, rattling isn't just taking those, those antlers that you've got, which I use the black rack. I like it. I'm, they're not a sponsor. I just use their stuff. But the black rack, when I get up there, it's not a, a tickling of the antler, antlers. It's, it's a smacking. It's hard clashing. They're, they're literally trying to tear each other's heads off. So when you do the rattling, you, you kind of start at first, like the two bucks are just coming together, just a little bit of that clacking sound, and then it's an all-out battle. But here's the thing that a lot of guys overlook. When you hear them fighting in the woods, you don't just hear that clack, clack, clack of the antlers, right? That bang, banging. You're hearing, it sounds like the, the earth floor, sounds like a flock of turkeys digging all at the same time. Because they're making a lot of noise. I mean, they're, they're, they're cracking sticks, the leaves are flying, the dirt's flying, because this is a battle. It'll go on for several minutes. So one of the things that I started doing a few years ago, you know, I heard guys say, oh, put your antlers on a rope and lower them to the ground and kind of clack them down on the ground. But it be- becomes a problem because once I get a mature buck, and, and here's the thing. It was the uh, the King Ranch in Texas did the uh, um, the data on this. They were, I think it was the collared deer, and they were checking on how many mature bucks were coming into rattling. And I believe the number was close to 70% of mature bucks will respond. Now, what'll happen is that deer will come into maybe 100 yards where you can't quite see him. He hears the sound, he's coming in. But if he gets your wind, you'll never even know he was there. But what I like to do is I'll get like a, a real thin rope and I'll, I'll get like a, maybe a three or four foot section of a fallen log. It's kind of, you know, just heavy and tie it up. And then I'll run that rope down through like there's a sapling right near my tree because what I want to do is I want to, while I'm rattling up in the tree, I also want to be able to work that cord with my foot because what it's doing is it's making that little sapling, you know, shake and move. So there's movement going on. And then you have that sound of this, the heavy thing thumping on the ground with the leaves moving, emulating what you would have if you had a deer going on. I shot a buck in Ohio. Um, I think it was 2000 and let me think what year that was. 2008. Nice big bodied, um, wide, wide, over 20 inch spread, eight point. And I had a, a small six who came into a rattling sequence that I was doing and uh, it left. So I kept doing the rattling sequence with that brush on the ground with my rope. And I mean, he came in postured. He had these all bristled up. He came in stiff legged and, uh, gave me a 30 yard shot. And it was beautiful thing. I still got that one at the house, but rattling really is, uh, powerful. And again, I I do most of that stuff in the mornings. You know, when I'm doing like a grunt call, sometimes if I am trolling a little bit, if you get a buck that you see coming in doing that, um, a lot of times, like instead of just doing it, you'll want to go up at the end of the tone, which is a little more aggressive. It's like, hey, I see you stay out of here. This is my area. And if he's ready for the challenge, sometimes that's all it takes. And that's, if I'm going to do it like a a snort wheeze or a sniff wheeze, that's usually when I'm going to do it. When I'm, I know he's mad and I want to challenge him, I'm going to bring him in. So that, that can be really, really effective uh, when they're, they're really fighting for their territory. So um, how about, let me, let me tell, let me thank you for a second. What about like uh, your setups? Um, You know, trying to, to locate where the best place to put a stand is. You know, it's really important you know where their water is, where their bedding is, where their food sources are, and those travel corridors that they're using at certain times of day. Um, 
to be able to do those um, setups. And I honestly, I love looking at the terrain for a couple of reasons. You know, one of the things I always say, don't be seen, smelled, or heard. That's the key to hunting. But I want to make sure that my travel corridor to wherever those stands are going to be, it's not going to bump where the deer are. You know, if they're in the field, if they're bedded down, wherever's going on, I want to make sure that I'm not going to be bumping those as I'm, I'm coming in or out. So that's really, really important with, with stand setup. But I also love um, what I call, well, pinch points. The areas that they're kind of funneling down that a, a high percentage of the deer are going to be going through. And I also want to kind of pay attention to what my primary winds that time of the year are. You know, like in, when I was in, uh, when I used to live in Pennsylvania, we had that northeast wind, you know. And so you had that, we call it the northeast factor. Um, and so you wanted to, to know where the deer are coming into the field typically most times, where their staging areas are going to be in the corner of a field. So you kind of know where they're probably going to be. And here's the other thing. Don't ever hunt a bad wind. I don't care what product you use. Uh, the only thing that a whitetail can't smell is nothing. I mean, science has proven that they smell almost 10,000 times better than a human. Um, there's really nothing. I mean, there's products. I'll, I'll mention something maybe in a little bit, but nothing is 100% foolproof. Play the wind. Have enough stands out there. Pay attention to your, your hunting apps or whatever you've got to know what the wind is doing and only hunt it. Because if you, if you bump them out of there, you know, it might be 72 hours, could be a week before they might come back. So, I mean, you can get away with a little bit more during the rut because, you know, they're running the does hard. But again, just play on the side of caution. Always, always play the wind. So pinch points are really great. And what I mean when I say like pinch points, I'm talking about things like, you know, fence lines. You know, when there's a fence, yeah, they'll jump a fence, but Typically, you'll see the trail running alongside when it gets close to a fence until you see a low section in the fence or maybe it's broken. Man, if you can find a great tree where those brakes are, where they cross, money. Really, really try to find those pinch points and, and fence lines or maybe fallen trees um, that, that the trail has to go around because they have to, to maneuver. And that's a great way to get your stand set up in a way that they're not going to be able to see you as they're going around. I mean, if there's an old, you know, dead, you know, log or something there, um, you know, I'll, I'll have no problem with trying to move it around a trail they're using so that I can make them come where I want them to come towards me. Um, you'll see them running along stream edges. They'll be, they'll be going across a stream until there's a shallow place where they typically cross. Another great pinch point. You know, if you've got a, a traffic area, there's roads coming through. Um, you know that they're, they're trying to stay away from a lot of those things. Um, ridges. I mean, you notice those ridges. You'll usually see like two trails running along the top of a, of a ridge. Um, and, and, you know, where they bed when the, when the sun is getting hot, what time, we do, whether it's the north side of a slope or whatever. But you got to take all these these things, um, you know, into into play because, man, your success rate is going to go way up if you start doing this stuff. Um, what about stand placement? Let me let me kind of talk about that for a second. You know, we we were talking about you know with scrapes or if you've got a rub, um, you know, when you get a you know a buck coming through and he's doing his his uh, you know his rubs and everything. People always say, how high do you put your stand? They all kind of vary, uh, to be honest with you. It depends on my cover behind me that I can blend in with. Um, or it can depend upon if I'm on the side of a ridge and there's a trail above me because I don't want to be at his eye level. So making that stand placement is really vital. If I can find something that's got like a, a good you know, spruce or pine like that where I can cut out a little section and kind of tuck myself up in it, Man, it'll keep the wind off of you. A lot of times, you know, when it gets really cold, deer love to bed in the pines. So, and, and the other thing is, when the rut is coming in, one of the stand placements that I love to be able to do is, you know that the, the bucks are kicking the does out of the bedding areas. That's what they're doing. They're running in there because they know the, the, the does are going to be bedded down, trying to stay away from all the pressure. And they'll just be blowing through those bedding areas trying to find those does. So a lot of times, I like to be able to have a stand um, and sometimes it will be a climber because I don't like to always have it in the same place. I want to be able to have something that I can move around if needed. But just outside of the bedding areas, again, play in the right wind because those bucks are going to be going in and out of there. Really, really great spot um, is, is trying to find those bedding areas. And, and the travel corridors, because the does know they're going to be being pressured and they're getting hungry and thirsty. And those bedding areas are going to pick a lot of times that time of the year 
or going to be close to a food source, close to a water source, because they don't want it having to be going all over the place and exposing themselves when they're hungry or thirsty. Um, so when it comes to, you know, would you hunt a, a stand 10 feet off the ground? Well, if I have the right cover and I have the right wind, yeah, I would. And here's the thing, too. When you're thinking about an arrow shot, when you're, when you're shooting your arrow, I, I used to do this. I would shoot high over the back of a deer because I used to put my stand, you know, at 25 feet or so off the ground. And now they make rangefinders that compensate for that, that slope because gravity, the way that affects your arrow, is so different than shooting on the ground the way we practice and then shooting it really, um, you know, way up in the tree. So I don't have to have a stand that's 25 feet anymore. Would I hunt one like that? Yeah, but not honestly too often. I like to be, a lot of the times, you know, 16 to 18 feet. I don't have to compensate for the arrow drop as much, um, but I just have to have the right cover. That's the main thing that I'm concerned about because you don't want to get busted. Once that's their bedroom, they know the way everything looks, the way it's been, and you come in and you put something new in there and you've, you've put your scent down, they know all of a sudden that area changed and they might start going a different way around it or be really leery as they're going by that. So you, you've got to be, you know, really careful and, and where to aim. You know, what do you do when you're, when you are hunting a higher stand? Like I said, gravity affects, you know, the flight of your arrow. So aim low. Um, deer don't jump a string as fast at, at 15 yards as they do at 25, 30, 35 yards. But they can drop, you know, like two-thirds of their body fast. You've seen them do it. So when you have a, if it, especially if a deer, <coughs> excuse me, is, is a little bit spooked, he's not quite sure there's something not quite right, and he's a little bit timid, man, aim for the low, lower third of the body um, always. So let me see. How about let's go into something different here for a second. What about? After the shot, let's say that you've, you've, this is for, for your bow hunters. You've, you've launched that arrow, you've hit the deer. Maybe you're not quite sure. Maybe it was that first, you know, legal hunting light. And maybe you were a little bit iffy, or maybe you're wondering if that deer ducked too much and not quite sure where it hit or he jumped forward. If you get a pass through with your arrow, pick it up and take a really good look at that arrow and see what it looks like. You know, is it bright red blood? Does it have bubbles? Is it dark red blood? Is it is it a brownie greasy? You know, you have the difference between you know, like a heart shot, a liver shot, a lung shot, uh, a gut shot. You know, the one thing we all hope and never happens. And if you hunted long enough, it, I'm sure it probably has happened to you. So then what do we do after the shot? How do we know when to pursue the deer? How long do we wait? You know, if it's if it's a, a gut shot, that deer is going to expire but it can take the entire night. I mean, it's it's something that you don't want to have happen. So, man, wait for the right shot, okay? Practice. You owe it to the animal that you hunt to be as ethical as possible. Um, but if it's a liver shot, you know, I give that deer four to six hours. It's absolutely 100% lethal, but it's, it's going to be slow. Don't start tracking that deer right away because you're going to bump it. And if he starts to dry up a little bit with that blood trail, you'll end up losing the deer. And again, we want to be as ethical as inhumane as possible with this. But if you've got that, you know, if, if it, maybe if he does a mule kick, it could have been a heart shot. So many times if they kind of hunch up, it was more of a back hit, a liver or a gut shot. But man, when they take off, um, I mean, like a, like a sports car and you hear that thing crashing, you know, chances are you, you got a, a lung shot or a, a heart shot. So in the evening, let's say it's, it's getting close to being dark and that deer comes in, and you want to give that deer, if you know you made a good hit, I'd still give it 20 to 30 minutes before I do anything. But what you've got to do is after the shot, watch the body language of the deer, and then watch the last place that you can see where that deer went. Because everything changes once it gets dark. I mean, you just have to really, really, really be on your senses with your eyes and your ears and everything. So <clears throat> say you're, you're traveling in the woods, you, you've got the blood trail, you're following the thing. And I can't tell you, I've, I've got a buddy, um, he listens to the podcast, I'll say hey to Mike. Um, he's called me several times going, man, yeah, I just made a good hit on deer, but the blood trail has dried up. Now, he's in Iowa, I'm in Indiana, you know, we've got like nine hours driving in between us, but he'll call and say, you know, here's what the blood looks like. And, and he's a, an amazing hunter. Um, and so it's been a few years since we've talked about this. But he'll call and say, hey, here's the area. You know, here's where water source is. Sometimes they'll go to water after they've been hit. And he'll just call it a process as he's making his decision. 
And one of the things I remember the first time he called, I said, hey, let's, let's help. Let's see if I can help you find that deer. He's like, well, man, you're like nine hours away. I said, well, go to your last blood spot. It was dark. I said, do you see where that last blood was? He said, yeah, I found the last blood. We've, we've gone like another 50, 60 yards in every direction and we're not or forward and we're not seeing the direction where he was going. We can't find blood. And here's the other thing. Don't get ahead of your blood trail. You can be kicking leaves over with your feet. You can't see where everything is going. Um, you might think you know where that deer went, but here's why that can change. When you make a good hit on a deer, say you got a lung shot, well, when he stops, you see that last blood, there's a really high probability that he stopped because all of a sudden that lack of oxygen is going to his brain. You made that really hard hit on the heart of the lungs and he's getting dizzy. Have you ever like, um, when you were a kid, you kind of bend over and you take a ball bat and put the handle like up on your forehead and then you spin circles, you know, holding the bat on the floor around like three or four times and you get dizzy. And the next thing you know, you're stumbling, you're running into stuff there's a really good chance of what happened was that deer panicked because all of a sudden he got dizzy and you're going to find that deer maybe 15 yards off to the left or the right. He might've stumbled and then tripped over a log and he's just on the other side of it. And you're not seeing his white belly because he's on the other side of that log. That has happened to me a number of times. And I have coach guys calling me from the phone, whether it be Kansas or Missouri or wherever and saying, man, I, I've lost a blood trail. And I'll say, go back to that last blood. You'll see all the leaves and dirt kicked up. And you'll follow that because what's happening is he's staggering, he's moving, and you'll see that dirt dirt kicked up. So um, let me see what else we can kind of talk about here with this. Uh, what about equipment? You know, for, for bow hunters, you know, a lot of guys, they're like, man, I got to have the, the latest, greatest, fastest bow out there. You know, I got to have something shooting 350 per second or whatever. I mean, you've got traditional hunters, you know, out there shooting 170, you know, feet a second, and they're taking deer. It really is anticipating the body language of that deer when it comes in. Is it going to be timid? Where do you need to aim with all that stuff? I mean, is it great to have a really fast bow? Yeah, I mean, you have less arrow drop because you're gonna, you're not going to have to have as much sight distance between your pins because it's not going to fall as fast because you've got all that speed. But I would much rather have a bow you know, that's IBO shooting it, that you get the, you know, out of the box, they'll, they say that, that the speed on this was like 340, you know, by the time I get, you know, the, the weight arrow I'm going to be using and the weight, the grain broadhead, all those things. And I, and I shoot through the chronograph, you know, I might be getting 282. That's still fast. Okay. So it doesn't have to be every, the lightest, everything you can do. I would much rather have a bow that when I'm drawing over the top, I don't have to lift the bow because there's too many pounds. That's the other thing I see a lot of guys do. They get back there and it's so, they think they have to have so much kinetic energy. So they, you know, they crank it up to as high as they can get, maybe 72 pounds on 70 pound limbs. And they have to draw the thing up over their head in order to do it. Well, that might work if you're sitting, you know, at home shooting your target. But when you're in the woods, one of the main things that's going to give you away is that movement. It needs to be something that when you're holding it, and I wear like a little uh, thing off my belt, little like a holster that I can put the cam on the bottom of the bow in so my arms aren't getting tired. And then all I have to do is just barely raise that bow and then draw straight back. There's no lifting the thing up high. If you're doing that, you're drawing too much weight. And it, then guys are going, well, hey, I want to be able to use an expandable broadhead, so I need as much kinetic energy as possible. There's another topic when we're, we're looking at this. You know, do we use expandables? You know, do we, do we use, um, you know, fixed broadheads? I mean, I've got a buddy of mine um, who hates expandables. It's the big joke. Everyone knows he ha hates them. Um, actually, it's Don Higgins. He was on my show here maybe two months ago. Um, he's a huge believer in, in fixed broadhead, one of the best hunters I know. So, you know, he's like, how do you argue with that? I'm in the middle. If I'm hunting heavy brush, I want to fix broadhead because if I'm hitting something, I don't want a blade opening up. And then again, it's not an ethical shot on a deer. But if I've got a nice open shot and I'm using like I shoot for Grim Reaper, I've shot for them almost every single year since 2006 because I know the testing on all the fixed and all the expandable broadheads. Uh, my buddy did the testing in the PSC labs years ago, and we did them at 80 degree um, ply, uh, plywood, you know, the angled shot. We did them into ballistic gelatin with hog shoulders, deer shoulders. Uh, we shot them through 55 gallon drums. So we know the durability of the blades on all these different heads. And here's the thing. They all work, but there are some that definitely are, are stronger and penetrate better. 
I mean, a, a fixed broadhead, the penetration is, is going to be amazing because there's, it's a cut on contact head. You know, it's like sliced butter. The downside of that is you usually have a smaller diameter. It might be one and an eighth inch. So your cutting diameter is going to be smaller. Um, one of the things I love about the Grim Reaper, and they don't even know I'm, I'm saying this about them on here, but um, the thing they have one broadhead I love is called the Hades. And on the back of the broadhead, on the back side of the blades at the bottom, they're sharpened. And that's for a reason that if you do maybe hit something inside and it stops, as that deer is running and it's working its way out, the back of that blade is cutting, it's severing arteries, and blood loss is, is what you want in archery. So it's really important to have sharp blades. But when it comes to like an expandable, their whitetail special is a two-inch cut. So if you happen to hit a branch or maybe the deer moved as you made the shot um, and you hit back a little bit, you have a better chance of being able to hit the vitals um, because of that. So rather than having to, you know, maybe you hit it back in the liver or the gut and you lose a blood trail, man, the blood trails with those Grim Reaper whitetail specials, my buddy um, just shot one uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, actually. And I went down to the thing and I said, did you go over to the deer yet? He said, no, I haven't even walked over to where it was. He came to get me in case we needed to track the thing. And when he told me where he hit it, I'm like, no, th this is going to be a crazy blood trail. We, we, I walked over there and there was a blood trail and it was not very long at all. And it looked like a Wagner power painter. I mean, it was crazy. So that deer expired so quickly in a great loss of blood. There's one of the benefits of a good expandable if you can make a really good hit. But like I said, there's pluses and minuses for both. It really is kind of up to you, you know, what you want to do. You know, your arrow setups, um, you know, are you wanting to use something like a, a, an FMJ, you know, where you've got something that's a little heavier arrow? When I'm hunting elk, I'll probably use a heavier arrow. That kinetic energy when it hits, and again, with a fixed, you know, I've got a lot of pass-through power. Um, you know, and when you're making the shot, something to really think about when you're at home, not just when you're up there, is when you come to full draw, the one thing you really need to make sure you're doing is you've got to let the bottom of that palm sink in it, which extends the arm, and it'll help you settle the shot. So when you get in the tree, you're not like quickly drawing and trying to get that shot off. Make sure that when you come to full draw, let that bottom of that palm just sink into the grip, and that will stabilize, you know, that shot. So those are just, a, you know, a few little things. But let me, let me go on to something that's maybe some of the most important um, in everything I'm talking about here, because, you know, I shoot for bear archery. I've been with them again since 2006. Um, all the equipment works. I mean, it really does. I'm not trying to put any company down here. They all work. Some might be a little better, maybe better customer service and th those type of things. But there's a couple of things that I want to talk about that are more important than any of the equipment that you're using. And that's how deer see and how they smell. Because if they see you or smell you, you'll never get to come to full draw. It doesn't matter where your stand is, where the food plots are, how many game camera pictures you got. If you get busted with that, it's it's not game on, it's game over. So people always ask me, they go, but Rand, you know, how do how do whitetails see? Um, everyone thinks they see like in, in black and white, but that's that's not the case. Um, they actually see the colors. It's a it's a I call it like a dichromatic vision. It's they can see like all the hues of blue and yellows, um, but they don't see like all the other, you know, like the orange and the red and all those and greens. They don't, they don't see that. Um, their, their vision is different. They also lack a, a UV filter in their eyes. So when you, your headlights hit them, you know, you see how they glow. That's, that's the reason why, but why is this important? that they see blue and yellow? This is something that so many hunters don't understand. Some still don't agree with it until I show them this article from the University of Georgia that was done on, on deer vision, where they discovered that those are the two colors that whitetails can see. Why is that important? Because if your camouflage has a UV dye or brightener in it, you know, when it comes from the factory, maybe it came from China. A lot of camo, unfortunately, still does. Um, the quality control might not be as good because you don't want UV dyes and brighteners in your camouflage because the way that deer see the brightener, it shows up as a blue hue, a blue glow. Um, how many of you guys have ever been like up on a tree stand? You had the wind perfect and maybe it's a maternal doe and she's walking through and you know she didn't see you move and you know she didn't smell you, but all of a sudden she's there and she, hurt, she just looks right up at you. I mean, I'll ask this when I'm teaching whitetail seminars and I'll, half the crowd will put their hand up and I'll say, chances are um, you've got a UV dye or brightener in your, in your garment. 
And you got to fix that problem. So this, what I'm saying now, isn't a, the company that, that makes the, it's called UV Killer. The one that makes it are zero UV is a company called Atsco, A-T-S-C-O. And you can go online, you can, they make a lot of hunting products um, for, for sight and smell and things. But how do you know if the camo you, and if you've ever accidentally washed, maybe your wife did, washed um, the camo in, in, in regular laundries like Tide or something that has a brightener, you've now just saturated that garment with a UV brightener. And the whitetails are going to gonna see it. They're going to pick up on it. So how do we fix this problem? What you need to do is you need to go and get a little, uh, it's like a black fluorescent light source. Um, I know that Atsco does make these. You can order off their website. I think it's, it's atsco.com. But you want to go into a, a mostly dark room and you want to get that light and have all your other lights off. And you want to hold it about three feet away from the garment. And if you see a blue glow, a blue tint to it, you've got a brightener in there. So what you're going to want to do is you're going to get Sport Wash. They make this, this uh, uh, you've seen a lot of you guys, hundreds, but probably use it. The wash, it says, contains no UV dyes or brighteners. It doesn't mean it gets the UV out of it, but what it does, it opens up the dye sites in the garment when you wash it. And then you use something they make with this, this, this um, uh, UV killer zero UV and you spray the garment down while you're holding the black light on it and you'll see that blue glow disappear. What it's doing is it's covering up that that blue glow so that it no longer reflects and whitetails in the first hour and last hour of daylight is when their vision is peaked with with the, the reflectiveness of this. And that's when deer are moving the most, right? They're heading back to their beds or heading back out. So you really want to make sure you got that that problem uh, corrected. And so that's that. Um, what about smell? You know, entrance and exit to your deer stand is so important for not being hurt, but also, you know, not being seen like we were talking about and not being smelled. Um, you know, a whitetail deer can smell you. I, I, Charlie Alzheimer one time had done the, the research, you know, how far away a buck can smell a doe, you know, being an estrus. And it was, like, I think he said it was like 410 paces. So you're looking at, you know, uh, that's a long ways. Uh, when you think about it, I mean, what would 100 paces would be about 100 yards. So four football fields, approximately, that's how far away that they can actually pick up on that. And they pick up on you. Like I said, they can smell almost 10,000 times better than you and I can smell. So playing the wind is the number one thing. But here's the thing, where I was just hunting, I was down in a valley and I had swirling winds all day. It was driving me nuts. You couldn't find a constant wind, even though, you know, it was saying like a southwest wind or whatever was going on and I was playing the right stand. It kept swirling, going in my face, you know, go my back. I mean, just sideways. This is when I, I really love a product that I use. And it's not just your typical spray scent control product. It's an oxidizer. Actually, Atsco, the same company, makes it. And what an oxidizer does, if you remember from science, um, you can spray theirs on your skin. The other ones say, do not spray on skin. Theirs is safe to spray on your skin. And that's important because those skin cells that you've got that you're respiring every single month, you know, you're, you're losing, you know, millions of skin cells. If you, if you were to go to a window right now in the sun and you were to rub your skin real hard with your fingers, it would look like a little snowstorm. Those are your, your dying dead skin cells that are coming off. And that is what is identifying you that that um, respiring gives off your specific human body odor and it's important to be able to scrub those off in the shower get an exfoliation glove and scrub really hard with a, a good you know no scent soap and then um, I spray my whole body down before I put my camo on you know your camo you probably washed it in something that, that gets rid of scent which is great and but it's is more important to be able to spray your body to to knock down the smell of your um, respiring skin cell odor. And so here's another thing I was thinking about with, with all of this is cover scents. Guys say, you know, what cover scent do you use? And this is going to anger a lot of guys, um, maybe manufacturers. I don't, I don't use cover scents. Why not? A whitetail has so many more receptors uh, than we do um, in their nose like I said, you know, they, they smell up to 10,000 times better than you and me. They smell better than a, than a bloodhound can smell. But they've got, um, you know, almost when you think about these um, olfactory receptors, they've got almost 300 million. We've got 5 million. And so their sense, let, let, let me give you an example. Let's say you walked into your house 
Thanksgiving time. Maybe, you know, grandma was cooking Thanksgiving dinner. You walk in the whole house, just smells incredible, right? But it's just, it's Thanksgiving dinner. It's all kind of lumped into one smell. But a whitetail can identify so many different smells at the same time. He would walk in and go, I smell turkey. I smell green bean casserole. You know, I smell cranberry sauce and I smell human skin. See, cover scent, he's going to walk in and go, yeah, I smell that fox urine. Okay, I smell raccoon urine. I smell the oak wafer, and I smell you. So I don't put a whole lot of stock in using cover scents because they still smell me. So spraying my skin down with what I was talking about, yes, they're still going to pick up because you can never totally get rid of that, that smell you have. But the amount of particles that are floating on him with the way that he smells, and he's smelling in parts per billion, and we're in parts per million. So with, with these things going on, Think about it as when that deer comes up and you're taking care of that as much as you can, he still knows you're there, but the amount that he's getting as he's breathing it in, is he at 100 yards or is he at 25 yards? Game over. So no, you can't totally knock it down, but you can put some of those odds in your favor if you really, really um, you know, take care of that stuff. Oh, man, we've been covering a bunch of stuff. Let's, let's kind of move you know, I always talk on, on the podcast here every week about we go from the wilds back to the home front. Well, how do you go back to the home front with this? Guys, we, we plan our hunts year round, especially, you know, whitetail hunters, because we're thinking about, you know, what's the newest blind, the newest equipment, putting our, our stand setups, you know, when, when the leaves are off so we can really see the trails really well and, and not worrying about bumping deer too late in the season and putting feeders up and game cameras and food plots and everything spotting, everything we can imagine. We put so much time. And we have a lot of hunting widows, as, as you know. Um, there's some women that hunt, but a lot of them don't. And what ends up happening is they begin to feel isolated because all we can think about is the hunt. You know, I, I get it. Um, so we talked about the rut. So let me ask you, and maybe you want to know, here's, here's a question maybe you want to know is, so when is it time for my wife to go into estrus <laughs> or rut, right? When's that going to happen for me, right? Maybe she's been distancing herself because you're spending so much time talking about all this stuff and she doesn't feel heard. She doesn't feel pursued. Um, and really when is that rut? You know, what, if you want to call it for your wife, that really depends on how loved and pursued that she feels. Um, my nephew, um, when I was getting married years ago, he came to me and he says, you know, one of the best counsels I can give you is uh, these, these three words he said for your, your, your wife, you're going to get married to. He said, pursue, 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 never stop pursuing. Guys, we don't ever stop pursuing whitetails, right? We don't. I mean, it's that passion that comes along. We, we spend so much time, you know, doing that. And I love that we have that passion. I think it's, it's wonderful. But there needs to be a priority that is higher than that. And it is to pursue our wives, our kids, even, you know, as if we were planning a hunting trip. You know, we'll spend, like I said, we'll spend so much money and in, in, in stuff and time you know, putting out new stands and all these different things, you know, downloading hunting apps, making sure we know everything that's going on. And But sometimes, we, even like when we go out on dates, maybe with a couple, maybe you, you and your buddy have a, you know, we love to hunt together, and so we kind of become friends as couples, and we go out to, to dinner somewhere, and the women, all of a sudden, the guys start talking about their hunting, and next thing you know, they're, they're feeling ignored, like you're not really paying attention and listening to them. And then she begins to feel distant. And so when's the rut going to happen? It probably ain't. But again, we have a responsibility to love our wives, to keep pursuing her. More importantly, we would do with, with white-tailed deer. We, uh, Stacy and I were at dinner uh, last week right after I got back from Alaska and was getting ready to go hunting. And we went out to, to like Roadhouse. We, we both love to get their uh, food and as we were in the waiting area, waiting area, it was about like a 35-minute wait. We probably had 60 people come in that waiting area, waiting to be seated. And every single person, when they walked in, pulled their phone out of their pocket. Couples, families, they didn't look at each other. They didn't talk to each other. They were immediately on their phones, just scrolling one thing after another. And we've been talking about that, going, man, what is, what is the one thing in our marriage right now that we need to do better at? And it's setting our phones down. 
We need FaceTime. We need talk time. We need snuggle time, all those things. And that phone can become an intimacy killer. You, you go to the restaurant, the whole families are sitting there on their phone. And I'm sure some of you, that's exactly what happens. And you don't even realize it until someone says, it, and you're like, yeah, probably need to fix that. Yeah, you do. And I'm telling you, I went to my stand the other day and I didn't have my phone with me. You know, sometimes I just use that to know what time I'm going to be meeting a buddy when I come out of the woods. But sometimes if I have cell signal, I'll find myself scrolling social media or something as I'm waiting, which isn't the smartest thing because I'm not really paying attention to what's going on in the woods. But when we do that at home, we get home after long day's work, your wife comes in, we sit down and the next thing you know, you're both picking your phone up and you've been on it for an hour. You haven't been able to say to her, honey, how was your day? You know, tell me about what you want to do. What, what do you want to do for the holidays? When do you want to get the Christmas stuff out? How can I help all of the, yeah, I know what your guys going is like, really? You know why guys really aren't into Christmas decorating like women are? It's because you can be unloading everything in your garage for about an hour just to get the boxes out that she needs for Christmas. And then by that time you're like done. But I'm just telling you, if you can get off your phone and you can pursue her, um, you know, it's more than like the occasional flowers, you know, or cards, right? That's, the traditional man thing, hey, I did my duty. She doesn't want you to just do your duty with this. Um, and it's more than just dating your wife at the same place every week. I mean, that gets boring. And, and honestly, it takes almost no creativity. And she's not feeling like you're really thinking about her. It's just what we do. Um, and for some people, that seems to work. It can be a stable thing they like. That's your decision. But I, I know that a woman wants to feel like you're looking at her desires, not just where do you want to eat tonight? I don't care, wherever you want. No, plan it. Find some place that, that's out of the, the norm and, and plan a dinner with her. Maybe, maybe do something like a little scavenger hunt. Maybe buy her something before you go out and she has to, maybe there's favorite lines from a movie or something. You guys think I'm going overboard? Think about what we just talked about with hunting, okay? Back to this story. Maybe do a scavenger hunt with, with things that she would only, you guys would know. Um, and have her go on this little thing and make it fun, make it funny. Maybe plan a date where you go back to some of those, those places when you were dating, the park where you were, you know, and, and take her on a walk doing that or go on a park bench someplace and sit down and, and remember. You know, you've got to be able to, to bring that romance back in to pursue her and before somebody else does. It's so important that we spend so much time, you know, write her love notes, you know, and hide in places that maybe she won't find them, maybe like until she opens a drawer, right? Or it could be in her purse. When she gets to work, she opens up her purse. Or maybe how about when she goes to get in her car, you've written a note and you've put it on her steering wheel. I'm by the coffee pot. My wife and I will, each morning, we'll either leave a note or get everything set up for the other person, knowing that we're really thinking about each other because we matter. But anyhow, um, I just want to encourage you guys to pursue your wife like you would if you were pursuing white-tailed deer and even, and even more, because you're going to find out when this life is over, it isn't about how many big bucks you killed that are on the wall or that you can show your buddies. This life is about relationships. You can't take those big bucks in your casket. I'm sure some guys have tried. You can't take your money, your wealth, all those things. We have one life. What are you going to do with it? God is the most important thing. And if he's blessed you with those people that you love in your life, pursue, pursue, pursue. Brother, I hope this helped you out. And uh, happy hunting, whether it be in the woods or at home. And again, remember, we are the resistance. See you next time.